Welcome to The Black Athlete, a podcast where we put the past into the present of black sports. I'm Lewis Moore. I'm Derek White. We're sports historians here to give you the historical context for contemporary black athletes. And welcome back to The Black Athlete. I'm Lewis Moore, author of I Fight for a Living and We Will Win the Day. I'm Derek White, author of The Challenge of Blackness and Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Lou, welcome back, brother. We we went on a little hiatus. Uh, I think I'm taking full responsibility for that. Uh, Yes, yes, a hiatus, and you are taking full responsibility for that. But it's a good, good thing that you did. Yeah, no, I, you know, it's, uh, you know, a lot of big things happening over here in the the White household, and and so I went out on a little mini book tour, you know, got to see my people out in Washington D.C. and Charleston, South Carolina, and Nashville, Tennessee. Um, yeah, it was great, man. I, and I got some interesting news, so you'll appreciate this. Okay. So I'm at I'm in Nashville. I go to Fisk University, one of the greatest historically black colleges of all time. A lot of history there. Charles S. Johnson, W. B. Du Bois, mm. et cetera, et cetera. And, and so, hold up, I, wait up. I think they also built the first uh, gymnasium at a uh, black school. So there you go. Oh, so there you go. Okay. There so then, right. so I'm in said gym- gymnasium. I don't know if it's the exact same one, it's, but it probably is. <laughs> knowing how the funding works, so. exactly. So I'm in said gymnasium and uh, talking to the athletic director, and lo and behold, I run into two legends of the Atlantic Coast Conference. One you definitely know. The head man's basketball coach at Fisk University is now Kenny Anderson. Oh man! Yes. yes. Ooh, he was he was cold. He was cold. New York's finest. Yeah. Oh yeah, my goodness! It, yeah, yeah. And and real quick, New York hasn't put out a good player in a long time. So they they get a lot of credit for having these great point guards, but it's been a while. But go ahead, I interrupted you. Go ahead. I, no, I mean I'm saying you you're ruining our listening numbers in New York with that comment. Oh my bad. Um, I'm sorry, New York. And and. Also, the men's soccer coach is a man by the name of Desmond Armstrong, who is a, a fantastic alumnus of one of the greatest institutions in America, the University of Maryland, um, and was one of my own personal heroes playing soccer growing up. And I had not seen that brother in, in over 20 some odd years and was actually surprised they even had a team and that he wow. was the coach. Right. So this has a, okay, Fisk has a soccer team. Yeah. Uh, wow. 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 Uh, but on that, like, remember, shout out to to Jermaine. Remember, we did that whole uh, yeah. Black Guys Sport in the World Cup. And so Jermaine works on uh, black soccer. And and I believe he actually, he actually has a great article out in uh, NASH, our mm-hmm. Journal of Sports History, on uh, soccer at Howard's. Fantastic article. Yes, yes. And so, yeah, no, it was great. So, you know, you get to go out and do... You know, to not only talk about my book, but to also run into these legends, man, it's it's fantastic. Um, and so for the uneducated, Desmond Armstrong was a member of the 1994 U.S. Men's National Team who went to the World Cup, uh, was a lar- starting uh, defender for uh, two World Cups, 94 and 98. Uh, and so it was it was a fantastic kind of moment uh, running into him. Uh, wow. And so it was it was great, man. It was great. Um, and uh uh, in 1990 and 1994, he was on the World Cup. But yeah, wow. so it was fan- let me, it's fantastic. Fantastic. Let me say that I thought the only black player on those teams were Kobe. Kobe Jones. So there you go. That's all I have for you. That's all you have. Um, That's because you're a West Coast guy. That's what I am is. a West Coast. Yeah, yeah. And real quick, the other thing about Fisk is 
in the fifties, there were were they one of the better basketball teams, or is that Tennessee State, which is right around the corner? Uh, Tennessee State, right around. There, the corner. my bad, my bad. That's all right. That's all right. I, up, I went to Tennessee State too. Shout out. Okay, to, there you go. That's yeah, what I thought. Yeah, okay. so I was yeah. there too. I was there too. I saw all the spots in Nashville. Uh, and then today, as we're recording today, is opening night in the NBA. So let's put. I'm gonna put you on the spot, and then we'll yes. replay this in like you know nine months. Right. Uh, who do you got for the championship? Wow. Uh, you know, I'm going with uh, uh, the Lake Show, LeBron and AD. I saw I saw enough in preseason, which means I saw five minutes uh, <laughs> <laughs> to realize that that is a a perfect combination, I believe, as Stacey Ladisaw and Johnny Gill saying. Uh, perfect combination. So, oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I got, I got some pipes like Eddie well, Kane. Uh, but I like that, and I like when AD and like McGee's on the floor together. AD Dwight Howard, like that defense is crazy. I like Avery Bradley uh, back to like a role player, understanding his role, and LeBron at point with shooters like Danny Green, who, who I believe I predicted during the Toronto Raptors series when he was going like oh for the series that he would be a Laker, and he's gonna let down LeBron. Uh, so yeah, he he will let down LeBron, but I think. Um, AD and LeBron's enough to kind of overpower everybody. Even the Clippers. Even the Clippers. You know, here's my thing about here's my hot take about the Clippers. And and listeners, we'll get to some global politics in the history in a second. But my hot take is this. They're under they they're underdogs, right? And and so Doc Rivers last year just put together a team of underdogs and junkyard dogs to go out there and just muck things up for 48 minutes, right? And now all mm-hmm. of a sudden they're favorites. And I don't know if you can like click if, if a Montrez Harrell could go from I'm an underdog to to now I'm a favorite. You know what I mean? And how that plays into his mindset, right? Um, because now all of a sudden you're you're expected to re- win, you're the big dog. And I don't know if you could have that same energy, especially now when you can't have that same energy because you got guys like Kawhi and Paul George who who need low management, right? And so mm-hmm. it's a it's an entirely different mentality, um, and and I don't know if those role players are going to be able to to change like turn on that switch. So what about right. you? Who do you have? Uh, I mean, the Lakers are a safe bet. I mean, I don't know. It's a good question. Like so many people moved this off season. That's the first thing right. I realized when I started thinking about it. Um, Let's. Uh, I don't know. Let's. Let's. The Lakers are a safe bet. I don't know. Somebody out of the East. Who. Who could we pick? Maybe Milwaukee. Let's go okay. with Giannis. Um, who you got for the MVP? Real quick. MVP is going to be eighty. Steph Curry. Oh, man. He's he's, he's gonna he's gonna take yeah. he's gonna take like thirty shots a night. I think his body's gonna break down. Is that's it? a fair. It's yeah. a, that's a fair. Played a lot of basketball over the last five years. Clay broke down. I think having D'Angelo will help them a lot because you still can't keep completely. If it was just Draymond, it'd be done because Draymond's not a threat anymore. Um, Right. Right. So we'll see. We will see. Right. All right. right. This is my last point before we actually talk about global politics. Uh, Zion is hurt already. Is this is this a dire sign, or is this something that modern medicine can fix? Look, I'm a doctor. Uh, not that type of doctor, but I'm a doctor. And my doctor hot take is that he's just too big and explosive, and I and I just think it's a lot on his body. Uh, so something's gonna have. There's gonna have to be some kind of weight loss, some type of new training, something. Uh, but I just because he explodes every single time. 
Uh, and I think it might be too much for him. It's, it's not, he's not a, he's not a 15, 17 year old, 17 year in the league guy, uh, with that type of body. That's a, that's a good hot take. That's a good hot take. We're going to come back to these hot takes later on in the basketball season, but I wanted to get them in. And speaking of basketball, I think this helps us transition well, nicely into our kind of topic for today, which is the black athlete in global politics. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Houston Rockets GM Dora Mori, uh, tweeted out, uh, uh, in support of the pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong. Uh, and the immediate backlash was uh, from China was swift and vigorous, right? right? It was against Maury. It was against the Rockets. It was against the NBA. Um, and all this is in an interesting kind of broader context, right? Um, as NBA has really transitioned uh, into a global game, and this is something that under David Stern they had taken very serious. Uh, the Rockets were the most popular team in China because of Yao Ming, who had uh, an ownership stake uh, with one of the, I think, television and broadcasting companies that showed Rockets games in China. Um, according to reports, NBA businesses in China was worth $4 billion. Uh, wow, right. $4 billion with the B, right? And so... As you can imagine, that the NBA was caught between a rock and a hard place between its business interests and its belief in supporting of the rights of free speech, especially among its owners and its players. Uh, and so how does this affect and in, in, in get into involved in the black athlete? Uh, probably the most famous black basketball, black, the most famous ba- basketball player, period, LeBron James, uh, comes out and says that uh, Daryl Morey should have known better. Um, and and which he sounded that uh, Maury should have known to not intervene in kind of global politics, especially the politics of capitalism. Um, Brian, of course, will walk that back a little bit. But one of the things this whole episode for us brought into uh, to brought into to the fore is this longer history of of black athletes and and their roles in global politics, especially uh, U.S. global uh, U.S. foreign policy. Right, and that's one of the first things I thought about, like, how do you, how do you put LeBron in this context? And and the reason why I say that is because so much of the media focus is, is not necessarily they cared about the black athlete, what they had to say. We'll talk about that in a bit, but just the notion that they wanted the black athlete to say something, not again, because they cared, but just to kind of silence them because they were saying something about what was going on at home for the last three or four years. Right. And so people mm-hmm. were coming at LeBron. Oh, you're not woke anymore. Right. But, uh, but there's a history to this, and I think part of this is this, and we were talking about this in, in we'll call it pregame, and that is America has been comfortable with the black athletes speaking about global politics when it fits what the majority wanted, want, want them to say. And that is to say we've historically looked at the black athlete who come from marginalized groups, right? And and for the longest time until the mid to late 60s, second-class citizens, right? Where you know, mm-hmm. half of these athletes out here speaking out don't even have their full rights when they're doing this with the Olympics. But we use them, and we'll get into this, to, to say something about democracy while also hiding the fact that they're marginalized, right? And so we're, we're comfortable with that because then we don't have to deal with the other issues, right? Um, and we could put ourselves out in a in a in a global light and say, look how great we are because here is a black person saying this stuff about democracy. LeBron changed the game a little bit because, and we'll get into this. He says the quiet parts out loud. He talks about capitalism, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but as we talked about, there's a history to this. And and the first athlete I could think of really speaking to 
global politics and people kind of, again, not caring what he has to say, but also listening to what he has to say was Jesse Owens. Now I start with Jesse and not Jack Johnson because Jack was really uh, on his own. Right. And that's just the way the politics were. And Jack thought about himself being on his own and that's the politics. But Jesse is a little bit different because in 35 and 36, so the Olympics, the Berlin Olympics are 36, but in 35, the previous year, him and the other black athletes are being asked to boycott, right? The Olympics because mm-hmm. of, of Hitler. And so now you have to, you, you put the black athletes, especially like Jesse Owens by that time, who's the most well-known track star on the spot about, are you going or aren't you going? And, and Jesse would say, and all these other athletes would say like, look, Hitler's a terrible person. What's going on is bad. But in my position, right, I could help out, right? Because I could, one, prove that democracy is better than what they got going on there. Two, if if I win, hopefully something comes back to my people. And he's very clear about this. He says this about uh, going in 35, and he says this similar thing after the Olympics, after he wins four gold medals, right? So there you have this idea. There's some global politics, right? And with Hitler, we, we know the story. And then there's a black athlete who gets this – very small opportunity to speak out. And when it is, he he attacks, you know, what's going on with Hitler. He supports democracy. And then there's that little small piece about, you know, I'm going to help my people out. Hopefully my people at home could, you know, get something out of this. And for him, he meant like no more Jim Crow. And we know that doesn't happen. Um, but that's the first instance. And then we get to really the Cold War and that changes the game. Yeah, the Cold War is 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 the moment in which we see black athletes, I think a large number, right? So in the World War II ex- experience, right? I think you see, you know, Jesse Owens, Joe Lewis and others are being used in the name of democracy in the fight against um the Nazis. But in the Cold War, this is complicated. This Cold War is is not fought on the battlefield as much as it's fought in popular culture and this wars of ideology. And thus black athletes have an important role, right? And so you take someone like Paul Robeson. And so uh what in fact um uh when I was at Vanderbilt I ran into a young man who didn't know who Paul Robeson was and I was so dis- disheartened. Um but oh, you know oh, Paul Robeson <laughs> I know it's oh. not good and it's not good. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 but was, what was, but it was important. And I was explaining to him is that Paul Rosen was, you know, he was, you know, a world-class athlete. He was a world international star, star of stage and film uh, and singer. And so he used his uh, experience, right. He used his, um, his, his platform, right. Uh, to go to the Soviet union. And he used his international fame to criticize America's uh, Jim Crow policies in the context of the post-World War II period. Right. Uh, and so he makes, he famously says that uh, African-Americans will not lift, you know, lift arms in, in, uh, to fight the Soviet Union, in part because the Soviet Union uh, is uh, has at least a, a public policy of being anti-racist, and we know behind the scenes they had another kind of story. But what what you know the the sporting world does is they promote Jackie Robinson, who had just come onto the national scene, just integrated. Major League Baseball to come out and challenge Paul Robeson, right? And so we have this famous uh, testimony by Jackie Robinson in front of HUAC, uh, in which he 
Uh, both, I think he also much like Jack, much like Jesse Owens, tries to thread this needle, right, where he's promoting the American foreign policy, but at the same time raising questions about Jim Crow segregation that America needs to live up to its ideals, right? So it's trying to balance this this space, uh, and so, but the Cold War, that opening kind of foray, really represents the next two decades, right? right. You know, next 20 years of black athletes in the international market. Right. And then real quick, if we got on that Paul Robinson for, for our listeners, I believe that's uh, 1949 uh, with that HUAC meeting with Jackie Robinson or Jackie Robinson's not there, but they get Jackie Robinson to go to HUAC. And he does this at a global summit, right? And essentially we're not fighting in a world war three type deal, but that's the backlash, right? I think Paul Robinson is a great example of, this is what happens to black athletes when they don't toe that line, right? And say essentially what mm-hmm. the what America will we could put America in air quotes or whatever you think what America symbolizes. What they don't they don't say what they're expected to say, right? So mm-hmm. Paul Robes is not out here pumping up democracy or anything like that. Why his people are as second class citizens, right? And, and and for that, eventually they'll 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 take away his passport. And I think there's a theme here. With athletes like Robeson, we'll get to Ali in a bit. When they have something to say about global politics and it doesn't fit this narrative where you have marginalized black folks saying something positive about democracy, that's when the backlash comes. Um, And then the difference, too, I like how you talked about how Robinson and Owens kind of thread that needle. The great difference between Robinson and and, and Owens is that Jackie was very explicit very explicit what he was talking about right he's like boom it's jim mm-hmm. crow it's voting laws it's police brutality it's lynching right and essentially what he says like just because it comes from a communist doesn't mean it's not true right he kind of and when he was talking about paul robinson right so he shot down paul robinson right saying this is kind of silly about black people not fighting in the war but then he was like look he's what he's also do is telling the truth about you know us being treated like second class citizens um, mm-hmm. But you're right. From then on, it is um, what about two decades of black athletes speaking in the Cold War, black uh, men and women. And the best way to see this is is at the Olympics. So, uh, 48, 1948, 52, 56, 60, um, and really 64 and 68 kind of changes the game. But you'll get a mm-hmm. lot of international reporters asking um, black athletes what they think about what's going on at home. And the reason why they're asking that, right? Because as you say, here's the cold war and, and a lot of it's fought on in pop culture. Right. And so if the United States is trying to promote itself as this kind of democratic nation and capitalism is going to win the day while all these decolonized nations are trying to make a decision, are you going under the U S sphere or Soviet sphere? It's important to see what the black athlete has to say. And for the mm-hmm. most part, when they're asked at the Olympic Games about things, whether it's a, a Wilmore Rudolph being asked about something or um, a Cassius Clay or a Mal Whitfield or a Harrison Dillard. And by the way, Harrison Dillard, gold medals in 1948 and 1952, and is still alive and nobody talks to him. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, <laughs> they always come out on the side uh, of America, right? Like, you know, this mm-hmm. is this is you know. Look, we're second class citizens, but I'd rather be in democracy, and that's acceptable, right? I got USA on my chest. I'll go home. I'll be treated like a second class citizen, but I'll speak about democracy. And for the most part, that's acceptable for the press. They they can digest this. 
um, American public can digest this, um, especially or if you look at the 60 Olympics, right? When Cassius Clay says this, there's a whole sit-in movement of 70,000 students going on in America. And a guy exactly. their age is is out there knocking Africans for living in huts and knocking Russia, right? While at the same time, you got Jim Crow back home. Um, and, I, and, and that um, is how a lot of people want their black athlete to be when it comes to global politics. Uh, the other thing we have to mention is that there's a very, 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 very good book on this. Yes. Damian Thomas is globetrotting African-American athletes in the Cold War. Uh, Damian, you know, I, is a fantastic, right? He describes how popular culture, uh, as we discussed, was used as a tool of foreign policy and that black athletes were used to combat this kind of uh, rampant anti-Americanism that was being fueled by the Soviet Union. And as you pointed out, that there's a, you know, as these uh, as African nations are becoming decolonized, they have to make a decision about politically, will they be under the sphere of influence of the United States or the Soviet Union, right? And this is a challenge that th- of this international sphere. And so one of the things he talks about is not just in the Olympics, as you noted, but also that the State Department themselves will begin to send Black athletes on these tours to try to show um, um, Black athletes as representatives of African Americans in this positive light. So we're using sports as a way to lure uh, uh, the international community under the U.S. sphere. So Bill Russell's in this, uh, goes on these tours. Wilma Rudolph is in this tour. Althea Gibson talks about how this State Department tour transformed her career, right? Because she had gotten those opportunities uh, to to integrate. Uh, tennis tournaments and then she but she wasn't able to break through as a winning and she talked about going on these uh the state department led tours as a way of kind of opening our eyes to the international plan and i think also just kind of reducing um some of the pressure on her uh, against playing against some of these uh white athletes in these tournaments and so she talks about this describing uh transforming some of her ability to win wimbledon and things of that nature in the 1950s and so there's this amazing book and and i want to shout out damian thomas who was also um uh part of my book oh, tour yes, uh, yes. yeah 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 we got let me drop the book tour moment right here um but who who did a great job in our conversation but fantastic brother who is also the, the curator of uh the sports uh section at the national African National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington D.C. And so it's a fantastic book that I that we both highly recommend uh, to to our listeners. Uh, but getting this context of which athletes and black athletes are used and employed in this Cold War context up until Black Power, right? And then Black Power, and as you noted, the '68 Olympics. Uh, really begins to change this context. Well, yeah. Well, Ali and Black Power, right? So the uh, the combination of Ali and then the 68 Olympics. But real quick before we get in there, shout out to to Ashley Brown, who's at Wisconsin, who's actually working on uh, some uh, her monograph, right? Uh, no, uh, her manuscript yes. is going to be on Althea Gibson. Um, so she's got a lot of great stuff coming out um, and we'll be able to put this in a better perspective. But yeah, so... Back to what's changing is is I think obviously sixty six right where when Ali starts mm-hmm. to refuse induction right when he starts to come out and say you know the Viet Cong never called me the N word or or you know I ain't got no quarrel with the Viet Cong that kind of stuff that changes the mm-hmm. game right because now all of a sudden 
it's not necessarily, okay, we're going to come out here and we're going to talk about, you know, how great things are. No, we're, we're going to come out here. And then, you know, a lot of these athletes are, are, are I like to say, seeing black Americans uh, as part of an internal colony here in America, right? So they're able to liken themselves to these freedom fighters across the globe. Um, Ali is really the first athlete to tap into it. But let's be clear, that conversation is going on in black America, right? So what what Ali does or what we also see in the 68 Olympics is those guys tapping into conversations that are going on real time and then using their platform to speak out to this, right? So it's not like Ali came up with this stuff. And so Ali's with the Nation of Islam, but Ali is also like hearing these things around him. And there's a movement um, around in these major cities uh, of black people linking themselves to other people. Um, across the globe, especially with Vietnam and, and the war that's going on, and and we see what happens to Ali for speaking out, right? For for for, yeah. for daring to 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 not support right America, um, and and that is man three years of his career, right? Um, mm-hmm. And that's the same thing with since, since it's going to happen to Paul Robeson, right? Uh, we see in the yeah. '68 Olympics where. Where John Carlos and Tommy Smith are on a global stage, right? And 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 we talk about global politics. All of a sudden, using their global stage in another country to say something about America, American politics, and and so it's a breakaway from what other athletes were doing in forty eight, fifty two, fifty six, sixty, sixty four, uh, and we see their reaction to that. What happens when the black athlete on a global stage something says something about global politics that? Americans don't like. Um, if it doesn't fit the bill, then you know you're you're ostracized. You're you're pushed out. And I think the powerful lessons then that they learn that other athletes learn is whoa whoa right. Like I don't want to be mm-hmm. like Robeson, Ali, Carlos, and Smith and risk my my careers. Uh, but then there's another athlete who really, I would say, takes this to a whole nother level of like global politics, and that around the same time. Is going to be Arthur Ashe, right? Arthur Ashe, I think, is is an interesting case study in this global politics, right? Because we've talked about athletes who support the American position, and then we have athletes who challenge American foreign policy, and then there's Arthur Ashe who who uses his platform as a international tennis star to uh, to challenge the apartheid regime in South Africa, and what makes this so complicated is that Arthur Ashe somehow manages to um, uh, to at various points anger a variety of different right. people, right? So one, one, the U.S. government is um, mostly supportive of South Africa when he begins this because it is a predominantly white government, right? And our, our position as global leaders of the free world did not trust um, uh, African leadership to um, to abide and be under the sphere of U.S. Uh, uh, influence in part. Um, and so that's one, right? And then two, when he gets in, when he finally uh, appeals for a, a visa to play in a tournament in South Africa, he also uh, meets with um, anti-apartheid leaders, which of course angers the government of South Africa. But at the same time, he also meets with the the apartheid regime, right? Which angers the leadership there. So, like at some level, he enters into this this very complicated situation. And I think what makes Arthur Ashe, at least in my opinion, different from some of these other folks is that, that he took 
an enormous amount of time to try to understand Mm, and constantly understand the issue, right? Like it was not, um, I think he may have been, I think his initial foray was somewhat simplistic, but I think, I think he, as he got more involved into it, he began to really understand all sides of uh, the South, the anti-apartheid movement, both the U S perspective, the, the free South Africa movement, as well as white leaders in the broader global context of sport in this. And I thought that was a very unique way because he's, he was very much like engaged in scholarship and reading and, and really discussing that in part of it, in many of his kind of um, uh, lectures, you should read, there's a couple of new biographies, right? Uh, uh, Eric Hall has one. And what's the big one that came out? Um, the big one. <laughs> It just uh, came out. Don't know, 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 know what you're about. It just came out. Yeah, yeah. It's like 800 pages. Yeah. That's like 800 pages. And um, and and I recommend both of those. I haven't read the 800 page one, but Eric Allen's is very good about the anti-apartheid. Uh, uh, Eric Hall, excuse me, uh, is really good about Ash and the anti-apartheid movement. But I think that's a different piece, right? Because we don't see we see Jackie Robinson develop some of that kind of development of that kind of over time, right? That kind of thoughtfulness. Um, I think. Uh, Ali uh, does that in, in some instances. I mean, in many ways, he's governed by, at least early on, by the Nation of Islam's position, right? That it's not going to be involved in the war, but he definitely evolves. But you see others, we don't see that same kind of critical engagement from many of the folks who are in part of that State Department yeah. <laughs> tours and whatnot, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, okay, let's go on. This is what we're supposed to do. And I think that brings us to this this moment, right? Where we come back to the very beginning, where we think about Braun and China, right? Like, one of the things that LeBron has done is that, you know, there's no good position here, right? right? You know, at some point you have to be, pro, you know, if you are, if you're for Black Lives Matter, you have to be pro-democracy. But at the same time, uh, you also, you have a multi-million dollar contract with mm-hmm. Nike, <laughs> who wants to be in China to sell sneakers and goods and services, right? And so this complicated position about global capitalism means that LeBron has to make a decision. Is he willing to give up hundreds of millions of dollars to take a, take a position that's probably morally and ethically right? Or is he going to, um, you know, recede into the background and, and claim that he doesn't know enough about the situation and protect his um and protect his you know business right. interest. And I think that's what I like what you brought up about Ash, right? This idea that he read about the situation. And it's not to say that LeBron didn't read about the situation, but but I think it is um a great example for athletes moving forward. That 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 here's the thing. Here's the thing. The moment you signed that contract, right? So black athletes, when we were talking all the way up until shoot, you get to the early 70s, they're not signing endorsement deals, right? So there's no really connection to a company I, I can't speak out. So when Ali's speaking out, he's not he's losing his he's losing his money on his livelihood via boxing and stuff like that, right? And you can't discount that. But there's mm-hmm. no like, hey, let me check with uh, a Puma really quick on, on what to say. Uh the moment you start right. seeing these athletes, they got to think about this stuff, right? Um, they they um, have to think about what's going on with their company. And that changes everything. That changes the relationship from the community to the company. 
And what we've seen with LeBron's case, and we're starting to learn out with a lot of athletes, it's moved from the community company to China now, right? Now, here's the thing what mm-hmm. I say about LeBron is that he says the quiet part out loud. And that is to say, look, America has always had this fascination with China and when it comes to capitalism and our business, right? And and you can see it. Mm-hmm. You could see it with conversations in the the 1880s, right? In 1890s, right? This whole right. idea of whether we're talking Josiah Strong or we're talking stuff about trade and, and, and or the, the Boxer Rebellion or anything about open trade and, and this kind of open door notes with China, mm-hmm. right? You can see it to this day with someone like Ivanka Trump, who every time we turn on the news is getting a new thing, whatever you call it, a new patent from China, right? There is business to be, mm-hmm. people want to do business in China. These athletes are no different, right? And I think America wants to do business with China. Now we, and and so we, are, we, we ignore the politics and we do that for a lot of places that we can't step in and, and, and just put our foot down, right? Part of American history mm-hmm. and global politics and our global economy, right? If we're talking about our own hemisphere, has been able to control the narrative because we could put our foot down, right? We can put our foot down in the Caribbean right. and most parts of South America and stuff like that. Um, but when it comes to China, we've never been able to put our foot down. Um, and so you live with those situations. And I think LeBron was just like speaking like a capitalist, right? And that's not, in this sense, it's not a negative yeah. comment about LeBron. It's just an observation that, LeBron thinks about his money. LeBron thinks about others' money. Millions of dollars were lost, right? And for these players, some of them mm-hmm. like some of them like LeBron have tons of money. Others don't. Um, but I think you're yeah. right in that Arthur Ashe mode that that you should at least read about these situations. Um, the other thing I like, and I think it's perfect time to bring this up, is in pregame we said, "Is this his?" Republicans buy sneakers too moment. And, and I'd like mm-hmm. you to elaborate on that a little bit more before we get out of here. No, you know, one of the, one of the stark and consistent criticisms against Michael Jordan has been that he has not used his platform. Uh, he has been a vehicle of global capitalism via, um, via Nike in particular and the Jordan brand. Uh, and he never used his, when he was at the height of his, his career and his powers, right. As an NBA megastar, he never used, uh, he rarely used his public persona to, to advocate for issues facing African-American communities. Uh, in particular, there's a, a nasty, uh, uh, Senate race in North Carolina between Harvey Gantt from Charlotte, North Carolina, who's African-American and Jesse Helms, who was a longtime former segregationist Senator. And it was reported, and I think that one of the things I want to make emphasize is that it was reported uh, in the in the Jordan Rules book that uh, Michael made have jokingly said that Republicans buy sneakers too, right? And that's as a reasoning, as a rationale for why he did not uh, engage and support Harvey Gantt uh, in a very close election. And it's, it has been a statement that has um, stuck with Michael Jordan uh, for his entire career since it's been published. And I think that's an important thing. Like, will this, I think, misstep on behalf of LeBron in, in his failure, in his support of uh, global capitalism over pro-democracy be something that will stain his career? That said, I will say this, that Harvard, uh, Howard Bryant made, had a tweet 
when this first happened, because uh, there was tons of criticism and var- variety of op-eds uh, from uh, these communities. And, and Howard Bryan's point was that uh, these people who are now uh, criticizing LeBron James had been very silent when he was supporting Black Lives Matter, right? And so there's a lot of se- there's a lot of self interest from a variety right. of parties uh, being engaged at this moment, right? And I think that there's a point to be said, right? That that this is often complicated by the racial dynamics of the United States too, right? Between African Americans and other minority communities, right? So there's a sense that that there's not a lot, similar kind of comradeship. Uh, among, um, uh, you know, among large communities, um, you know, pro-China communities in the United States, Asian communities, whether we're talking about education and affirmative action and all these kinds of things. So there's lots of different lenses upon which this could be dissected. But I do think that LeBron, this this quote, this week, these last couple of weeks are going to be interesting. And it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out for the rest of the season, not just in terms of LeBron, but this is the number one issue facing the NBA, I think, going forward. Um, it's the number one off-the-court issue. Uh, it's international. It's messing right. with the business. Uh, it, it has a chance to lower, for instance, the salary cap. So it's messing with players who had nothing right. to do with anything, actual money. So there's a there's a lot of kind of ramifications for this one tweet and the, and the NBA and LeBron uh, in the Chinese market and global politics. No, you're right. And that's, I think that's the, the, the storyline to pay attention to throughout this NBA season is how are these guys going to handle it? Um, I, but I also honestly, and then before we get out of here, I, I just think the report, a lot of the reporters asking these questions don't really care what these guys have to say. Never have, don't care. They just want to ask this question. Part of it is, I think it's, I think it's part of that shut up and dribble, just part of it, right? That is to say, okay, you had mm-hmm. all this to say. You're not saying anything else, right? Like I ignored you for the last three years. Now I want to hear you on a subject I don't even care about just so I could tell you to shut up, right? Um, and and I, mm-hmm. I think that's what it is. I, I don't think, honestly, 90% of the people asking LeBron James or James Harden a question don't care what they think. They just want to put them on the spot. Uh, just so they could just call them hypocrites, um, right? And I, I think that's what's going on here. But it's going to be interesting to see how it ha- how it shapes up because you can't tell me it's not seen through a lens of this is a black athlete speaking because when they call them hypocrites, they talk about that. Or, you're, you know, you're speaking about social justice here. Why not overseas? And so I think people are seeing it through a lens of the black athlete. Um, and, and And I think the criticism is through that, through that lens. No, I think, oh, absolutely. The criticism is through that lens, but I think it's also, I think that, that LeBron's reaction is also refracted through also the, the dynamics between, you know, Asian American communities and black athletes as well and black communities as well. Right. And and I thought you brought up this excellent point. Um, Even in this whole global capitalism, this is uh, that, you know, one of the areas devastated by global capitalism was Akron, Ohio, right? Like thinking about, you know, like, so, so like we look at like the, the number of layers um, that are so much beyond, I think just, you know, even us who are scholars who, who, who study, you know, American history, right? Like it's a, it's, you know, asking a professional athlete 
to have a grasp and a handle on these kind of conflicting and complicated issues of global capitalism and politics and then deindustrialization and racial politics in the United States is asking a lot. Whereas when they can talk about, you know, Black Lives Matter, racial issues are coming through their own experiences that they have affirmed because they know that they have something tangible that they can relate it back to. And I think that's probably the thing. And, and I think for LeBron, capitalism is the tangible piece that they can hold on to. Thus, that's why they're supporting uh, that explains some of their support for global capitalism in this immediate moment. Right, right. And and on that note, man, it's time to, it's time to, it's time to get out of here. All right, man. Peace. All right, peace.